Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I need a personal assistant. You mean like a summer intern? No, I'd like who can either do research or get my dry cleaning. Yeah. Feed my cats, manage the, the you know my contractors. I just you know this is the if I could have one luxury in life, it wouldn't even be a driver. It would be a personal assistant. You know, I've thought for a long time, and I have said to Ben that if I could hire one personal staff member, it would be like Alice on the Brady Bunch, like a house, oh my a, God, a house manager. Yes. Have you looked at a the, major domo? Have you looked at the app Task <laughs> Rabbit? I've heard of it. Because I think that's sort of what it is. Um, I need an on-demand Alice, aka Task Rabbit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you should look into it. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Never Say Never Trump Again edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. That sounds like a great title for the next Bond movie. Star. That should be Daniel Craig's swan song. Oh, the Never Trump Again? Never yeah. Say Never Trump Again. Can I just it's say. A horror, a horror film with starring James Bond. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, it's I'm, a mashup of sorts. I think Trump should be the Bond girl. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, gold oh, hair. He'd look good in a gold bikini. Gold finger, but uh, oh, gold short finger. <laughs> <laughs> small hands. Yeah, small hands. He'd be a very good Bond villain, actually. He would. No, it's too obvious. He should be the Bond girl. He should do it. Yeah. I think I think Ted Cruz is more Bond villain. Yeah, than... he really is. I'm going to miss that guy. I really am. I, I have on. the Constitution right here, Mr. Bond. <laughs> yeah, I have memorized Ted it. Cruz, Jeff Heidi Cruz, as he went for the hug, and yes. he got her he, right in the face. Oh, Ted Cruz, right to the oh, bitter end. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, well, we're going to talk about all that here on the podcast, but uh, I am joined, as always, by my friends, Susan Hennessy. Hello, hey, Susan. Hey, Shane, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm doing great. Uh, Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And our friend Ben with us. It's huge. It's huge. It's a huge, huge podcast. Huge, No, it's huge. Huge podcast. Huge. Bernie Sanders says huge, but Donald Trump says huge. No, I think no, they I think both have that, that huge. Like, H as a Did y. Bernie pick it up to mock Trump, or did he... No, he's from to... Brooklyn. It comes right. naturally. Okay, I was I got confused. I lost the thread on if that was a joke a long time ago. As I did in so many threads. <laughs> what <laughs> that is I thought there time for you? None of this is a joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is all really this happening. This is really happening, everybody. And we're going to talk about it. Uh, this week on the podcast, Donald Trump becomes the presumptive Republican nominee for president. Say that, it, say that again, Shane. The presumptive Republican nominee for president Who? is Donald Trump. Say it one more time. <laughs> oh, no. If I say no. it one more time, like the earth will tilt it. <laughs> like witches will fly <laughs> out of like juice. cracks in their exactly Beetlejuice. Uh, that follows a overwhelming, I think it's fair to say, primary victory uh, in Indiana. Uh, also, Iraq and Syria are in meltdown. Why is this time any worse than before? And the Supreme Court gives the thumbs up to new hacking powers for law enforcement. Um, let's get right in with Trump. So Trump, was it the final 52% of the vote in Indiana to Cruz's 30-ish something? It was a blowout. It was a spanking. I think a that's total a blowout. scientific term. Right. Cruz went into the uh, primary election, of course, having no mathematical way of collecting the delegates he needed. His strategy was to deny Trump the magic number 1237. That now seems basically impossible, uh, uh, barring some unforeseen event. What Trump were all the, the, the rioters in Cleveland going to do now? Right. I mean, they were all... I, listen, I, as a journalist, was so psyched for this. For a contested convention. Oh, yes. It would have been so great and so just interesting and fascinating. And now it's like, I mean, the networks are going to go gavel to gavel. I don't know if they're still going to... Oh, I actually think the, the uh, contested... The, the convention that's going to play out may be really interesting, too, because I think you have a possibility of a walkout by large numbers of people. I think you have, okay. Uh, okay. You have the possibility of very large numbers of the delegates being obliged to vote for the man and not wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, remarkably unenthusiastic. So you think there could be a draft movement, then? 
It's not a question of a draft. It's just a question of what are, what are the theatrics of a uh, convention in which know. very few of the delegates the actually never, want the nominee. The Never Trump movement is sort of quietly slinking away at yeah. this point. We're yeah, I think it never took off. Consolidation of the establishment. Yeah. Frank Priebus saying Donald Trump is the nominee. Never. They're trying to make Never Clinton a thing now. I think that you're going to see a few very principled individuals on the fringe, sort of who are not at the core of what moves the party, especially in down ticket races. I mean, I think as worried as many establishment Republicans have been about the consequence of a Trump candidacy for the rest of the party, now that it's here, they really have no choice but to try and make the best of it and limit or mitigate the damage for down ticket races. So I think. They're going to work hard to have a unified convention, which doesn't mean there might not be some drama. But, you know, and Trump is clearly trying to play it nice now. Oh, but it's, he's it's true. Well, but he's incapable of it. Like what a day, yeah. maybe. Well, before he starts coming after Hillary for, and we can talk about this too as we get on to it. But any number of things that he will absolutely attack her on. But as soon as he turns his ire toward the Democratic candidate, then he has the whole Republican Party behind him. Well, I mean, that might be the one thing that all the wings of the Republican Party agree on is that they don't like Hillary Clinton. That's that is true. But here's also the question that I have with this is. I don't know if there's any sane Republican who actually believes this man is going to be elected president. I think most of them probably believe he's going to be blown out by Hillary. And they're very glad to have somebody with as high negatives and as much baggage as she does to attack her. But I guess I wonder how enthusiastically Republicans are going to get behind him and go after her. Because once he loses, that will all be on them. All of the terrible things that he said about her, uh, the sexist things he undoubtedly will say, the things he'll say about Latinos and Muslims, all that is going to be stuck back on them. So do you just sort of smile and nod, or do you go out there and, like, beat the drum for Trump? So, so look, I think you're going to start seeing a bunch of high-profile Republicans endorsing Hillary Clinton. Uh, they will not be Republican politicians. Well, Lindsey Graham might be one, but I'm not sure you'll see a lot beyond that. I don't think it'll be Republican politicians, because, but, but I think there's going to be a group of thinkers, foreign policy intellectuals. Um, let me give you uh, an example. I don't, I don't know. But yesterday on Lawfare, Carrie Cordero... Uh, who works, uh, you know, is in an advisory capacity for Kasich, um, uh, wrote a piece, a sort of, you know, Trump is a national security threat. You, you know, you really can't vote for him if you take national security seriously piece. Now, right now, she has the option of supporting Kasich for another few weeks. Who? Sorry. <laughs> exactly. What happens when somebody like that doesn't have that option anymore who really believes that Trump is a national security threat? One can ask the same question about people also just using lawfare as a text. Uh, how about John Bellinger, who particularly first, I think, first raised the question of whether Trump was a, right. you know, a Trump presidency was something we shouldn't accept as a national security matter. Um, I don't know what those people do um, when faced with the choice of a steady, boring, democratic hand of machine politician type like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. But I would be very surprised if they ended up supporting Donald Trump. Okay, okay fair question. And that's a, that group of establishment Republican national security policy experts is a really interesting and, test. And case. by the way, you've already seen it with, with Bob Kagan, who, who... Okay, who's no longer even a Republican, right. he says. <laughs> yeah. So it is a really interesting group of people to watch, but their choice... If, if they feel they need to choose, uh, will not move the broader electorate one millimeter. I hate to say it. The whole, what I'm wondering is whether this argument that Trump is a danger to America's standing in the world or American national security, no matter how compelling it may be to, to policy experts, whether it matters at all in the political campaign. I was struck last night that even the calmer, kinder, gentler unifier Trump, who gave that victory speech, had all of the same uh, blasé, superficial, sweeping statements about what he would achieve without any details about how he would achieve it. 
And American voters don't seem to care. No, right. Republican primary voters don't seem to care. So that's why I do think it is going to be relevant, because I think that there is this group of people who are currently supporting Kasich, the Rubio people. They've, they've sort of, they've, they've been hopping from one sort of savior to the next, and now they're left with nobody. And, um, and I think that they are going to look to sort of the establishment to say, um, what, what do we do now, guys? And if they see the establishment sort of saying, well... Hillary's re Hillary is worse, or Trump's right. They're going to sort of um, they're going to decide how to make their decision moving forward. I think based on on sort of the signaling of who they view to be rational actors, which is why I think it's so incredibly um, worrisome to be to see people like John Huntsman now coming out um, in, in support of well. Trump. And mean, bottom line, John Huntsman's choice tells me that the national security argument doesn't weigh very heavily mm -hmm. with re with Republicans, and frankly. You know, election after election, American voters don't vote on national security for the most part, except immediately after 9-11. And I, I, you know, I hate to be sort of Debbie Downer here, but I just don't think this is going to weigh very much. So I, I think that it's going to be a bigger factor than you think, and here's why. Number one, American voters do not vote on national security, but that is partly, I think, because the distance between the two major party candidates on national security issues is always uh, fractions of inches. And, you know, we always, we, we pretend that they're big. I'm tough, I'm George Bush, you're swift boat John Kerry. Um, but in fact, you know, they weren't actually promising to do anything very different from one another. They both want to beat up terrorists. They both uh, actually supported the invasion of Iraq. They both, you know, y you, you go through what actually separated a Bush from a Kerry on foreign policy, and it was entirely tonal, or almost entirely tonal. Here, you have something very different going on, which is that one party will reasonably be able to make the argument that the other is a very dangerous thing for the country to have at its helm on temperamental grounds, on substantive grounds, on knowledge grounds, and frankly, let's be honest, on mental health grounds. <laughs> and um, and um, I think that the, uh, you know, so the question is, can you get elected in the United States as president of the United States without a single Hispanic vote, a single black vote, a single female vote, or a single vote of somebody who might be concerned right. along those axes? Now, I'm a little bit, I'm exaggerating, of course, but, um, but I think the answer to that question is if you combine it with Trump's other, shall we say, electoral liabilities, uh, it's, I don't think it's going to be insubstantial to have very large numbers of admittedly, not including John Hutzman and, and Chris Christie, some people will get in line because it's their party. But I think a remarkable number of people are not going to get in line because of because it, it's their party. Well, we're about to find out. Oh, yeah. yes. And I just want to say, I, I'm with Ben on this, I'm going to say two things. I mean, one... You know, math is math, and math has been math since the beginning of this. Math, that's exactly why the Bernie thing was never, I think, really a threat to Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, the math got all, you know, cockamamie perhaps on the Republican side, but there is no way this man wins in a general, not with the negative numbers he has among women, not assuming with the Assuming those vote. constituencies turn out. Right. How assuming many people that they are just going to get turned off well, that's by what that, will be okay, a really Okay, that's another math campaign. question. Right. But I mean, like, if you're just looking at the map as it is now, he doesn't win. So the question is, what I think what's really interesting is what role does the foreign policy national security debate play in the general and debates? I actually think it's going to be central, because if you think about it, this, the key tenets of Donald Trump's campaign have to do with American foreign policy decisions, namely trade deals. Decisions that we've made that have made us weaker in the world, whether it's bum trade deals with NAFTA, with, with China, how we're being taken advantage of by other world players, how we need to be more muscular with our military. Everything is about making America great again to the rest of the world because mm -hmm. the rest of the world is laughing at us and sees us as weak. Therefore, it really does seem to me like that foreign policy calculus is at the center of his campaign, which is shocking considering it is the thing that he probably admittedly knows the least about and is the least comfortable talking about without a script. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting. You're right. All right, we'll see.
But I think unfortunately, they, the rest of the world is going great. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. But I think the, the initial let's, thing let's to have some Schadenfreude here. For the initial thing to watch is just over the next few weeks, how many Republican, how many more Republican intellectuals, um, and particularly politicians, come out and say, "I won't support him." Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you know you've already had one senator say it. Uh, a long time ago, actually. Uh, but I think it'll be really interesting and to see... And that will become part of the media narrative, however, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, right. I mean, what what does Lindsey Graham do now? Right. What yeah. does John McCain do What does Ted now? Cruz do? <laughs> yeah. I think we know what Ted Cruz is going to do. <laughs> uh, okay, Iraq and in Syria. Boy, talk about people who have, a, have bigger problems than we do. Um, if only Muqtadal Sadr... And uh, a body could get along as well as Cruz and Trump. Oh, yeah. Do you <laughs> imagine? Yeah, exactly. There's a peace plan. <laughs> hot take. <laughs> that is a hot take. Maybe, maybe Muqtada is, is a vice presidential candidate for Trump. Oh, oh Trump no. Sodder. I'm not, I'm not sure he's qualified, but um, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, Vice President Biden was in Iraq last week. There were um, pretty. Uh, spectacular protests inside the green zone. Um, a U.S. Navy SEAL was killed in Syria this week. Um, tomorrow, it's it's. We were talking about the just in Syria a couple of weeks ago about the potential for a peace. Um, what the hell happened? Yeah. So I'm I'm sorry, Susan and Ben, but the Peace Lawfare published a couple of weeks ago about the benefits of that ceasefire is not looking so good. This week, um, it's a ceasefire that was always pretty raggedy, and as I noted on the show, only applied in certain areas and to certain actors while the Russians and Syrians were making their own judgments about continuing attacks. Uh, and they really doubled down on that strategy over the last week um, with some vicious assaults on Aleppo, including apparent targeting of hospitals, providing care to civilians trapped in the city. Um, and so we've seen a, a significant spike in uh, civilian death and a new wave of displacement out of Aleppo. And this really seems to be, the Russians seem to be very stuck on not reigning in uh, the Syrian regime on these attacks and, and supporting them, in fact, arguing that the rebels on the ground who are holding parts of Aleppo have allied themselves with al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda-linked uh, extremist rebel group, and therefore they're all legitimate targets because they're all terrorists. Uh, there have been some intensive diplomatic meetings in Europe uh, by John Kerry to try and put a ceasefire, a meaningful ceasefire, back in place, so far with no success, and the rebels have pulled out of the negotiations uh, unless and until, A, there's a na uh, countrywide ceasefire, and B, there's real humanitarian access to these beleaguered populations. I, you know, I see this war heating up, not slowing down. It seems to me that there, there's a tremendous amount of anger and frustration in the Arab world about what's going on on the ground and the way the Russians are, are playing it. And so I suspect that we'll see, either by governments or by private individuals or both, increased support to rebel fighters uh, and maybe provision of arms and other systems that they that they hadn't been provided before. Do you think it's possible that it has sort of the perverse effect of um, uh, forcing, weakening the United States' hand at the negotiating table, particularly with the Russians vis-a-vis -vis Assad's return? That it, that it's been so long, the situation is so bad, there was this hope of the ceasefire, this hope that sort of things were going to get better, and now, um, do you think it's possible that sort of um, the, the, the world opinion or sort of the opinion at the negotiating table is just, we, we've got to end this. We have to, like, sort of we're in such a crisis point that even if it means, you know, Assad returns with some set of political conditions and there's an open election, I mean, do you think that it's possible that this kind of weakens? Well, I, th I think you're on to something very much if you're talking about the United States and... Uh, the Europeans who are desperate to see an end to this migrant flow. Um, but the, the key parties are the ones that are doing the fighting on the ground. And they, I think the United States has lost leverage with them because it's demonstrated that it can't actually get the Russians to rein in Assad or to, to halt the killing. And so I think the rebels and those who support them, that is the Sunni Arab states 
in the region are less inclined than ever to trust in a top-down diplomatic process. The whole premise of the ceasefire and of the negotiating process that Kerry and Lavrov set up was that Kerry could constrain the rebels and the Sunnis, and Lavrov could constrain the Iranians and the Syrians. And there's just no evidence of that on either side. So I actually think we're in for an escalation, um, which, is, which is heartbreaking for the people of Syria. Uh, but I also think that a, a top-down agreement by the international community that leaves Assad in place in any form is also a recipe for an escalation and fighting on the ground. So I, I just want to, uh, first of all, I want to say a word in defense of Sloan Speakman's piece, which uh, I think uh, Tamara's uh, introduction does a little bit of an injustice to, because uh, what what Speakman was arguing was not a predictive judgment that the ceasefire was going to hold or an observation even that, uh, that, that it was, you know, going to play out in, a, in, in a, a better way than we expected, but that it had had, over the month and a half that it had been in effect, a pretty dramatic positive impact on... Uh, a variety of metrics in people's lives, and I don't. I didn't read the piece as a, as any kind of suggestion that the uh, that uh, in the future the, the that those conditions were likely to persist. No, nor did I. Let me be very clear. And first, let me say that Sloan is is someone that I admire, and and I'm not attacking her analysis. I think the flaw is that it was an aggregate analysis. It was looking at metrics of death and humanitarian access countrywide. And as I pointed out in our earlier discussion, that masks that there were vast differences within the country, areas where the ceasefire simply wasn't ap applicable at all. And Aleppo over the last week has become the heart of that right. problem. So the, se the second thing is on, on the question of uh, um, this is a shout out to another thing we ran on Lawfare, but actually on the Lawfare podcast, we did. Um, I did. A, I thought it was a really interesting conversation with Cliff Cupshin of the Eurasia Group uh, uh, last week, um, who uh, is a sort of Putin and Russia expert, but has a kind of particular interest in Russian policy in Syria, and I thought his. I commend it to anybody who's sort of interested in what Putin is trying to achieve in Syria and how that interacts with with U.S. policy. And ra rather to my surprise, um, Kupchin was a, a little bit more sympathetic to what Putin is trying to do in Syria than certainly I am or than I frankly expected him to be. Um, but it's a it's an interesting conversation, and he's he's a very very bright guy. There's one other interesting dimension here, which is the Iraq piece of this. And we saw Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, political allies and a lot of angry, frustrated Shia Iraqis storm the parliament in Baghdad, overrun the green zone uh, over the weekend. And this is a, a, an intra-Shia political battle, actually, in which Prime Minister Abadi is trying to put into place some reforms pushed on him by the United States and others to bring Sunnis back in to uh, governance in Iraq. And these other Shia are upset that, in, uh, in their view, he is privileging Sunni grievances over their grievances, which are about corruption and lack of services. Um, and what's interesting here is that the fact that different Shia political factions uh, are arguing to such an extent that it's blown up uh, the ability of the central government to function, it draws Iran back into the mess that is Iraqi mm -hmm. politics in a way that probably they weren't looking for right now. And it also, I think, forces the United States and Iran to think separately or together about how to manage this Iraqi problem. And, and so I think, you know, while in Syria they're increasingly opposed, in Iraq the U.S. and Iran really just can't avoid each other. Right. I think one of the interesting things, sort of, um, I have sort of less familiarity with the situation on the ground in Iraq all these years later, um, was sort of one the um, the opulence of the green zone. Right. So th there's <laughs> people tearing down these walls, and there's these fountains and lawns and palaces, and just what a sort of um, 
uh, an unbelievable symbol of oppression it was. Um, and two, kind of, um, this was not a particularly violent protest, actually. I think they, like, cleaned up after themselves and was sort of... Um, it's very but, polite. It was very polite, but it was um, a pretty dramatic demonstration that you're not nearly as safe as you think you are. We breached this in about, you know, a couple of hours. Right. We pulled People down People power wall. breached it. Exactly, and that, and that really... Um, the breach itself is a comment on the strength of the Iraqi government and the strength of Iraqi security forces because they clearly cannot keep safe the one thing they have always said they were able to keep safe. Right, because they won't shoot people, you know, and, you so know... So we should be glad. Well, so, I, I, and I think that's, a, that's like an interesting... So I, I, I've sort of gone back and forth with myself about how to think about this. On the one hand, <laughs> it's an Irani, Iranian-backed cleric who's been a thorn in the side of the U.S., um, since the time of the invasion of Iraq, Muqtada al-Sadr is is a is a lousy character um, from from a pretty interesting family, and he's got a uh, militia. You know, we don't love in democratic societies political parties to have their own militias, but there it is. On the other hand, this is a political protest holding. Uh, a coalition government accountable for corruption, ineptitude, and ineffectiveness, and making demands, uh, and not killing people, uh, not blowing anything up. It's something that is in a crude, it's like Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, in, in a crude way, it's it's. Uh, Which exam- totally works, if, you guys. If it were supported by Iranian-backed militias. It would be <laughs> right. I mean, but, but it is—it's recognizably politics, which is not what's going on in Syria. Right. It's not what's going on in Libya, and for that matter, it's not what's going on in Egypt. And I think there's something, you know, before we sort of hyperventilate too much about, oh my God, they they breached the green zone. They did, you know, like it was a demonstration that kept itself within you know, sort of plausibly political means to achieve, frankly, legitimate political ends. You know, it's a very fair point, and I think that the the alarm that a number of Iraq experts expressed to me over the weekend was not so much about the protest itself or the grievances, which are real and have a substantive basis, but about the impact of this intra-Shia dispute on the broader struggle within Iraq, because this political argument is taking place within the context of an Iraqi state, parts of which are occupied by ISIS, where, you know, American uh, advisors are working alongside the Iraqi military and other coalition forces to try and regain territory. And the whole argument has been, can you win Iraqi Sunnis back uh, and keep them, uh, bind them back to the Iraqi state? by having the central government make reforms that would help them feel secure, that they have a role there. And if, if other Shia are pushing back against that, then the political part of the anti-ISIS strategy in Iraq gets much, much, much harder. And I think that's from a sort of faraway American or counterterrorism-focused perspective, that's the main consequence. Okay. Um, speaking of politics, Rule 41. Rule 41, man. Rule 41. Not it's not rule, politics. Not. This is an apolitical process. Oh, no. It's rulemaking. Well, that's totally Can we use lots of noun phrases now because we're talking about rulemaking? Uh-huh. Oh, good. Yes. Susan, what the hell is Rule 41? It's not Rule 40 from the Republican Convention. It's Rule 41. It's Rule 41. It's Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Awesome. Um, a, a handy dandy little manual. Hang um, in there. You're going to like this. You're going to like this one. Um, so, so without sort of getting too in the weeds about it, um, that uh, essentially uh, the, this is the rule that tells uh, a federal magistrate judge under what circumstances they can issue a warrant. So the government has evidence of a crime, they fill out an application for a warrant, they state their probable cause, particularity, it has all these things, they take it to the judge and the judge takes a look at it. So that's all in Rule 41. Like yeah, that's we, the checklist. So we think, is, of, we, we, we think of warrants as issuing under the Fourth Amendment. 
but actually that's not right. They issued pursuant to Rule 41. So not just pursuant to Rule 41. They're they're issued pursuant to um, to the procedural rules. Um, And and those procedural rules, there there are all these requirements. And whenever a judge gets an application for a warrant, they have sort of a checklist that they look under. And one of the first questions that a judge has to ask themselves beyond probable cause and on all these other specific things is, do I, individual judge, have the authority to issue this particular warrant? So you can't go to a judge in California and ask for a warrant for uh, to arrest someone in Brooklyn or to search someone in Louisiana. That's not how the rules of venue work. And so Rule 41 is a rule that relates um, to a uh, magistrate judge's ability to issue a warrant for, uh, for the remote search of a computer. Um, so the problem is, is that uh, the way the rule is currently constructed, um, it essentially says that the magistrate judge can issue a warrant for, uh, for the search of a computer in that magistrate judge's district. So the problem is um, sometimes you don't know where a computer is located. So the Department of Justice has run up against two pretty significant problems. Um, so problem one is uh, just people anonymizing themselves on the internet, right? It happens more and more, particularly in the child pornography cases. Um, so, you know, you're investigating a crime in Massachusetts or in Virginia. Um, you know, it's it's a team of investigators in Virginia that are, um, you know, for example, in the Playpen uh, FBI. Um, Playpen was a child porn a, website. Of a child pornography website. Um, the person that they ultimately ended up catching um, happened to be located in Massachusetts. Um, and so uh, a district court judge has now invalidated that search, saying that the warrant, a warrant issued by a, by a magistrate judge in Virginia uh, cannot be valid against somebody who's in Massachusetts because, the way, because technically under the rules you can't do that, um, and the rules matter. So, uh, this, uh, so uh, okay, um, there's going to be all these warrants that are going to be struck down uh, as a result of sort of uh, this, this massive um, law enforcement action against Playpen. Um, and at the same time, there's, uh, there's this uh, movement now to, uh, to amend the rules, to, to basically make a small change that says that um, it has to be in the magistrate judge's district unless you don't know, right, unless there's a, there's a reason not to be able to know where it is. And in that case, some other sort of set of circumstances will suffice, right, the investigatory team or evidence of the crime emerges or, or something, right, uh, an amendment to account for, um, for anonymization and also for the use of botnets. Um, so because so much computer crime is conducted through botnets, mm-hmm. um, which of course use computers in many, many, many districts, you might actually know where those computers are. Um, under the current rules, if you saw a botnet that was uh, seizing computers in 50 different districts, or I think there are 94 districts total, all 94 districts, you would have to go to every single one of those districts in order to obtain a valid search warrant, in order to conduct a search to uh, stop the botnet. Um, and so the Department, of, the Department of Justice has said you know, that they need to be empowered to sort of respond to this stuff um, because they represent sort of a, a common scheme, a common crime. Um, so this is sort of, um, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting the way it's playing out um, because uh, at first there was sort of the objection to, no, 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 you can't, these warrants are not valid. You saw the ACLU and other people coming forward saying, you know, you don't get to not follow the rules because it's not convenient to you. By and large, judges are agreeing with them. Now that um, the Supreme Court has actually voted to approve a change to the rule, um, and now uh, Congress has six months basically to say no. So if they don't act at all, it becomes part of the rules of procedure. Um, uh, or if they affirmatively approve it, it becomes part of the rules, but um, they have to uh, affirmatively disapprove if they want it to go away. Um, now uh, there's sort of this, this attack um, being led by uh, Senator Ron Wyden uh, that we shouldn't be changing these rules, that um, this is authorizing the hacks of you know thousands of computers and sort of these additional remote searches, and um, this is a massive expansion of, um, of the FBI and, and the government's power. So once again, as we've seen with other sort of um, encryption and other cases, the government is saying, no, 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 this is a very modest amendment to a venue change for a rule of procedure that's kind of this little They're thing. They're trying to make but, it technical, but, but are Wyden's, they also... But Wyden's right, isn't he? 
I mean, it is a, it's a huge change in practice, in, in practice, regardless of whether it's a minor change to the rule. So I think it is a huge change in practice. I don't think, I think there's a, been a little bit of a presentation that, oh, they're like, they're doing this in secret somehow, as opposed to, well, clearly yeah. not. this, this, is, this is what you do. There are no rule changes in secret. The other thing is, what, um, you know, what, what do we, what should we expect the government to be doing in these circumstances, right? So certainly we should expect the government to be playing by the rules, so um my personal sense is that it's not okay to exceed the scope of Rule 41, even if it happens to not be convenient. If, if a warrant's not valid, a warrant's not valid. And sometimes bad guys get to go because you don't have a valid warrant. My response is, you change the rules. Right. Um, so the question now becomes, uh, if we don't change the rules, what happens? Mm -hmm. um, sort of. Uh, so is there anyone other than the FBI, presumably, arguing on behalf of this rule change? Anyone out there in the political universe? So the entire federal judiciary supports the rule, the Supreme Court supports the rule, sort of uh, the, the essentially unified uh, executive branch supports the rule. Um, I don't know sort of what advocacy organizations are coming from. But, but the but, judges but, are saying that they think this is a useful rule change because the cases that are coming in front of them don't account for, so the, the rule doesn't account for the reality they're dealing with in the courtroom. So the judges don't engage in sort of the, pol the politics of it, right? They agree that the venue is overly constrictive for the facts on the ground, and so they support a rule to uh, clarify the, in those circumstances, you know, not all the time, but in those circumstances where the location is not known, um, or a botnet is being used, that, that, that that's an appropriate extension. But I'm confused. So what does Wyden and the ACLU think the rule should be? As in, so if you have a situation where you have probable cause or maybe overwhelming reason to believe that a crime is being committed is in progress and you don't know where the relevant computer is, surely their view isn't that you should not be able to get a warrant or you should take a wild guess which jurisdiction so you say surely, but as in many of these cases, we have a lot of opposition and not a lot of specificity on what the alternative is. So there's sort of, there's the, um, the fear-mongering. Maybe that's not even fair. There's, it, it might be accurate. Senator Wyden says, under the proposed rules, the government will now be able to obtain a single warrant access and search thousands or millions of computers at once, and the vast majority of affected computers would belong to victims, not perpetrators of a cybercrime. He does not elaborate on what sort of what the fix is here. Well, but these the could be victims of a botnet, in which case they would want their computers to be searched and the botnet stopped. Well, so I think we're seeing sort of the same, um, the same tension playing out on a lot of different places, which is that people, uh, sort of a group of people who are uncomfortable with what they view as, as uh, governmental overreach, are essentially going all in on the notion that uh, the government's job should be really, really hard. And that any time uh, there's a rule or a case or an interpretation or a technology that might make the government's job easier, that that should almost be per se opposed. Because in their view, and I think this is not an unfair way to put it, in their view, um, resource constraint is a really um, important check on the power of the government. And so that's constraint of... Needing to get a bunch Sh of different ones. Shane is nodding energetically. Shane's yep. libertarian impulses are coming out. I mean, yeah, does I that mean, strike you why as is, true? Why does Ron Wyden have to offer an alternative to something that he sees as a gross violation of people's privacy on this mass kind of blind level? Why is it up to him to come back and say, well, let me try and craft an alternative? Why is no, it no, a gross no, violation no, of people's privacy? No, no. so, 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 How can he so, be for kitty porn? No one's saying you're for kitty porn. No, but I mean, if you're saying, you know, we want to stop kitty porn, you're giving government these authorities that could lead in all kinds of new directions to start searching things without specificity and restraint to venue, that's not, that's bad. That's wait, really, wait, that wait, is the slippery slope. It's second, not okay. without specificity. The, all of the rules for, um, for obtaining a, a warrant to remote search of particularity, specificity, all of those things apply for each and every computer search. It's just a question about whether a single warrant can be issued in a different venue and also whether a single warrant that is um, that is uh, authorizing a search based on sort of a common crime, right? So, so this notion of oh, Susan's saying it's just a narrow technical change. It's right, it's right. Come on, it's funny. It's like five words. It's wefathin. Hang on, and we all know what happened after. Hang on a second. So, first of all, I don't think the burden is on Ron Wyden 
to propose an alternative unless Ron Wyden accepts that there's an underlying problem. So if your view is current law is fine, and it's fine for, for lots of computers, if their location is unknown, to be outside the possibility of a warrant, unless you happen to guess which jurisdiction it's in. Um, if that's your view, and I, you know, that, I could see that being Jamil Jaffer and Ben Wisner's uh, in the ACLU's view, that you know, we just don't want to make it too easy. So if your view is there is no problem, then there's no need to propose a solution. On the other hand, if you accept that there is a problem and that there's lots of warrants that the government should be getting that it can't now get under current law, and you don't like this particular proposal because it's overbroad, then it seems to me there is a burden on you. But has Ron Wyden agreed there is a problem? Well, I don't know. That's kind of what I was trying to well, ask. I, I, I want to see the numbers. I don't the numbers. know that he's sort of come forward, but I think. Um, as we see, uh, so I think that almost everyone would agree that the individuals that that actually accessed, um, you know, uh, possessed and potentially produced child pornography that were that was um, that were found pursuant to this playpen uh, operation, um, I think most of us would agree that uh, those people sh- should uh, be brought to justice. Their activities should be stopped. Um, we are now seeing that um, the current rules do not allow that to happen. The current rules do not allow the government to legally discover those people's identities, and they do not allow the the government to, when they have discovered their identities, proceed with prosecution. Now, if Ron Wyden is willing to come forward on uh, on the legitimate merits of that and say, I'm all right with that, then I don't think you're wrong. The problem is that we're seeing this sort of this constant pivoting, right? It's never saying, it's saying, oh, no, well, of course that's terrible, but it's going to, you know, there's this slippery slope, all these other things are going to happen. Okay, okay, but what about this terrible thing that you just agreed was Why terrible? Why can't you craft the rule just to make it for kitty porn? So you could. So there are there are uh, object, uh, exceptions right now for cases of domestic um, and international terrorism. Um, the problem is, are we really going to go kind of step by step? Uh, the procedural rules tend, uh, they're not, they're a little different than substantive law. Um, they're not supposed to be crime specific. They're supposed to be really about what is the proper constitutional sort of power and authority and constraint um, of the federal judiciary. So it's that well, process is not really a place to be making sort of these very minor decisions. So as a practical matter, uh, this is irrelevant because Congress cannot muster the energy to do anything in a unified fashion <laughs> in six months, and so the well, I- it's going to be enacted. The rule is going to pass, right? Yeah. So the, the you know. The, the it's de- almost as someone designed it that the, way. The, 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 default, <laughs> the default option always happens because Congress can't change uh, default options. And the default outcome here is the new rule is going to go into effect. And therefore, I say to Ron Wyden, <laughs> Oh, dear. Maybe that, can be, that can be your object lesson, <laughs> Big Raspberry. Uh, let's actually move on to object lessons now. Um, uh, who would like to go first, actually? I will. Okay. My object lesson uh, is a book that showed up on my desk recently by the estimable Bill Banks and Steve Dykus called Soldiers on the Home Front, the Domestic Role of the American Military, published recently by Harvard University Press. It's a very Um, thick book, but inside it just says posse comitatus, and there's a bunch (laughs) of blank pages. So I have not read it yet, um, uh, but I am a a big fan and admirer of Bill Banks, um, uh, um, and I uh, am very much looking forward to it, so I thought I would give it a shout-out on the show. Okay, great. Congrats. Uh, Tomorrow. Okay, well, you might recall that last week I uh, used as my object lesson what I called my next read, a book called Dangerous Alliances by uh, Dr. Patricia Weitzman. And I got, after the show aired, a lovely, lovely note from one Alex Lilly, uh, who's a rational security listener. Thank you, Alex. And who wrote to tell me that uh, Dr. Weitzman had been her professor at Ohio University, a mentor. Uh, a supporter, um, somebody who encouraged uh, Alex's interest in um, national security, and uh, that Dr. Weitzman passed away in 2014 from leukemia after mentoring a generation of students. And so she wrote to say thanks for giving Dr. Weitzman's 
uh, work a shout out on the show and uh, and to let us know that it meant a lot to her to have that remembrance of of Dr. Weitzman uh, as her mentor. So. Alex, thanks for writing. It's so yeah, very great. nice. It was her. awesome to hear from you, and uh, I promise that I will report back on the book once I finish. Great, it. excellent. Great. So Susan. my object lesson is a camera mm-hmm. installed in my shower. Oh, well, that's a very so shocking. Object that's a diff- That's not the camera it's we were expecting. A hypothetical camera. Oh, you didn't. Unfortunately, have sorry, people of the internet. <laughs> sorry, eager sorry, national Susan security stalkers. listeners, right now. I'm sorry. This is just a hypothetical camera. Um, so I was on a panel um, moderated by one Benjamin Wiss a few weeks ago, um, in which we were discussing sort of the, the relatively sort of. Uh, Unexciting topic of uh, automated uh, automated privacy controls and information sharing under the you know under CISA and sort of um, uh, baseline cybersecurity best practices and, and sort of using automation to ensure that there was a robust privacy controls. Uh, next to me was uh, Laura Donahue of Georgetown, uh, Georgetown Law School. Um, so uh, Laura, t- uh, I think, can be sort of fairly characterized as I, I, like a. Pro, a, a privacy advocate, or sort of, um, she tends to um, oppose surveillance and government collection, essentially in all forms. Um, and so, in response to my saying that you know um, it was really important to know that um, nobody was looking at this stuff, right? This is automated; it goes through a computer. This event, um, she sort of she she came back really strongly with sort of this show-stopping line, um, where she said, you know, if there was a camera, I, I reject the notion that automation. Um, uh, protects privacy. Um, if there was a camera in your shower and it was just recording you, and somebody told you, um, you know, that they weren't going to look at it for an improper purpose, um, that would still be a privacy violation because privacy is about your personal sense of security and not, uh, and it's not from the government's perspective. And she sort of made the case. Um, so I was a little bit, I sort of flummoxed at the time. I, I didn't have a response, which is relatively rare. Um, <laughs> But I sort of, I initially agreed with her. But as I've been thinking about it over the course of the past couple of weeks, it's really been bothering me. Because you know what? I think I am okay with that camera in the shower, subject to my initial argument about automation uh, being privacy protective. And so today on Lawfare, I posted a long defense of the, um, a long privacy defense of somebody putting a camera in my shower. Um, I'm sure it will be very well received. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> going to dare you to do it. That's right. They will not be <clears throat> happening. Um, Susan living her principles in if, her if, shower. You know what? Actually, I will say this. If someone can de- can design a system that satisfies all the conditions that I set forward in that post, I will install the, shower, the camera in my shower. Ooh, you're so sure you that's not going to happen? You just made Laura's point. It <laughs> has to establish all the conditions. Right, including the condition of the surveillance being justified in the first place. I also, so I have to develop epilepsy, which, you know. Oh, jeez. Uh, well, okay, so that's a challenge Anyway, for stay tuned. I will let you know. Camera, no camera. All right, my object is $8 million, which is the estimated amount of salary loss by Laramie Tunsil. Jesus. After he was the picked. The token uh, Laramie Tunsil? The token, yes. After he was picked in the 13th, 13th, 13th round, 13th unlucky 13th round of the NFL draft, as opposed to much, much higher as had been anticipated, after in the moments right before the draft, suddenly a video mysteriously <laughs> posted to his Twitter account of him wearing a gas mask with a bong affixed to it. Uh, because I guess like, a bong no- is an implement for smoking marijuana. For, um, yes, for, for, for all <laughs> for your yes, for, for everyone out there who doesn't know what a bong is, um, because apparently just doing the bong hit was not enough. You got to put on a mask. You got to put on a mask to do it. Maybe he has like poor lung capacity or something. Because I mean, you should just be able to take the bong hit. The That's mask is, and then kind of the point of the bong. It's kind of the point of the bong is to help it happen. Uh, and then I guess I gather took off the mask and revealed himself to be <laughs> Laramie. Fatal Tenzel. mistake. <laughs> so there, there is definitely like there's a life lesson. Probably many life lessons. An expensive one. Yeah, an eight million dollar one. one. <laughs> Embedded Who did in this. It? 
I I'm, don't know if that's been revealed. I don't yet. think it's been revealed, but I'm I'm totally curious to know. Sort of Somebody who thinks they're either really funny like or this. really hates Larry Dunstall, <laughs> um, but who's not going to be getting any money. All right, what are the lessons learned? So then? one lesson I would think is learned in this is um, don't forget future NFL draft picks. Um, you work for a very large corporation um, that, as was said in the movie recently, you know has a day of the week named after it, and the only other one for that is the church. So yeah, you work for a company. Basically, and don't do stupid shit. Although this was a years-old video. Yeah, but okay, that also raises another potential lesson. Yeah, I I think the big lesson of this story is use strong passwords. Yes. Two-factor authentication. Yeah. Okay, say it with me. That's it's a fair lesson. I think there's another lesson though. What? Keep the mask on. Yes. (laughs) You put it on in the first place for a reason. All right. the grown-up here and say the lesson is don't do drugs and let oh, people videotape you doing that. No, unless it's in your <laughs> shower. <laughs> unless it's in your shower, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> that is not the lesson, kids. Yeah. <laughs> but don't do drugs. Uncle Shane says you smoke all the pot you want. <laughs> I mean, listen, don't do too many drugs. Do you guys ever see Love Actually? Yeah. My favorite line with the, the aging rock star, he goes, on TV, he goes, remember kids. Don't do drugs. Become a pop star and then they give them to you for free. <laughs> also applies to the Daily Beast. Yeah. Totally applies to the Daily Beast. <laughs> it's like, do uh, free drugs. Oh boy. Well, Laramie, you know, lesson learned, I guess, maybe. Also, maybe stop tweeting. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our archives and pictures of us wearing bong masks at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Um, when you download the podcast from the camera in Susan's shower, please remember to leave a rating, but only about the podcast and anything that you might see. Feelings, people, they can get hurt very easily. <laughs> Privacy is something to be respected. <laughs> Great, I've had a kid, Shane, right? <laughs> like, I, got, I look I got hot. no complaints. For the record, leave a rating. Turn the camera on. Here's the password. Laramie Tunsil, dollar sign. <laughs> Meanwhile, back show, on Earth. The show is edited this week by Jen Hell. Our music is performed by Donald Trump's Tiny Rule Adjustment. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's a very, it is a very tiny just a tiny roll adjustment. It's nothing to fear. It's totally not threatening. Uh, His rules are fine. <laughs> His rules are fine. He doesn't have a problem. <laughs> no, of course. Our uh, music is always performed by Sophia Yan. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, on behalf of my good friends, Demarco Hoffman Wittes, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, so who hopefully will still talk to me after we're done. I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 